We are on the third missionary journey of Paul, and we are going to spend two weeks here. This one is going to be a little bit different. So the first one was actually planting churches. The second one was supposed to be revisiting the churches, but they got sidetracked because Paul... um, Possibly the hypothesis is he's got sick, and so he had to kind of break new territory going all the way to the west to Troas and then out to Macedonia. And then the thing about the third missionary journey is that you wouldn't even notice that it's starting if you're reading through Acts unless you're looking for it. Because Paul has such itchy feet, he gets back to Antioch, and then he almost immediately leaves again. And so literally, it's uh, chapter 18, verse 23 Um, This is the dividing line between the second and third missionary journeys. When they landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem. He greeted the church. Then he went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed. That was it. That's the, that's the, the distinguished, the line between the second and third missionary journeys. And it's basically just Paul just travels the rest of his life, right? He, he does not the kind of person who has a home base. Um, Antioch was considered his home. And so the, the reason that's distinguished between the second and third is that when he comes back to Antioch, that distinguishes then when this journey is ending, the next journey is beginning. The third one's going to be a little bit different though, because instead of traveling, 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 he is going to camp out in Ephesus for a very long time. And there's, there's a good reason for that. So when he sets out, this is Acts chapter 19 that we're going to begin. When he sets out, um, he goes first to Galatia, and of Phrygia. So those are the places that he has already planted churches. And then you come down to um, 19 and he comes to Ephesus. Now, Apollo was in Corinth. Now, while, while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the interior region and came to Ephesus where he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you became believers? And they replied, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Then he said, into what were you baptized? And they said, John's baptism. So just as a background, John the Baptist was the cousin of Jesus. John started his ministry before Jesus. John preached the repentance of sin in preparation for the Messiah. Jesus was the Messiah. And so if you've heard John's preaching, but not Jesus's, then what you have is you have this preaching that teaches you to repent of your sins and prepare for the Messiah. And so people who were baptized into John's baptism got that part of the message. Repent of your sins and prepare for the Messiah. What they did not get, and this is very important, is the movement of Jesus's movement was marked by the Holy Spirit. So you remember when Acts started, the whole movement started when the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they started the movement in Jerusalem. And then the craziness started when Peter preached to Gentiles, which were non-Jews, and they were also filled with the Holy Spirit. And so as Paul is going and preaching, he sees people coming to faith when they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And uh, for them, that that is a tangible difference. So he says to the churches at Galatia, When I preached to you, you had the Holy Spirit, and that's all you need. You don't need another gospel beyond that. The gospel is you having faith in Christ, receiving the Holy Spirit, and that means that you are now in the family of God. You have been brought into the family of God. Um, And in that context, he was saying you don't have to become a Jew. You don't have to follow the law. You are in the family of God because you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is very important because as we go on, we're going to see the movement of the Holy Spirit— 
and especially in this chapter, the importance of the Holy Spirit in people who claim to have it but actually do not. And so what Paul says here is he says, well, John baptized the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come, and the one who was to come is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Now, we're not going to get too much into the speaking in tongues today. We might do a whole Sunday morning on charismatics. Wouldn't that be fun? Um, but for right now, right, we'll bring out the snakes and everything. Um, for right now, there is, we're just going to leave it at there was a discernible difference when they were baptized in the name of Jesus. And Paul could see that. And that was when they became a part of the family of God. Altogether, there were about 12 of them. So he's in Ephesus. He, uh, Paul then enters the synagogue for three months. So he lasts longer than he does in some of the other places. He's preaching in the synagogue for three months before he gets kicked out. Um, spoke boldly, argued persuasively about the kingdom of God. When some stubbornly refused to believe and spoke evil of the way, he left them, taking the disciples with him. And he argued daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. So what he does is he leaves the synagogue after having get, gotten kicked out of the synagogue, and he starts to preach to the Gentiles, which is his model in every city he goes to. But what's different in this, this continued for two years. Paul stays in Ephesus for two years. Now, why would he do that? Historically, Ephesus, which is right up there on the coast, was a major port town. Ephesus was a major center of trade. It was a huge city. The stadium held 25 hundred people? No, 25,000 people. The stadium had 25,000 people, which in ancient world, you can find the population of the city by multiplying by about 10. So this was a city of about 250,000 people. It was a trade center and people were coming in and out all the time. And so what Paul did is he rented this public lecture hall and he preached there daily and people would come to hear him because he was such an effective speaker. And not only was he able to get the word out to Ephesus, this really big town, but he was able to spread the word to everyone who was coming through. And so this is the last um, sentence of that section. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. So what's happening is that as people are coming in and hearing him, they, they are then going out and they are spreading the word back to their hometowns. So if you are a merchant and you are in town because you have to stop here uh, on your way to deliver your goods, you're going to go do all the sites, right? You're going to see the things. You're gonna, this was the home of um, the temple to um, Artemis. So you're going to go see the temple to Artemis. You're going to do the touristy things. And then you're going to go hear this guy who keeps drawing a crown because he's such a good speaker. And people would do this and they would hear them and then they would, get, they, would, they would come to the faith, right? So they would become Christians, and then by the end of it, they would be baptized, and then they would go back to their hometowns, and they would bring the message with them. And so it's almost like Paul is placing himself um, on this place that's becoming a megaphone and allowing him to reach all the way to the end of the continent just by staying in Ephesus, which is why this is a different kind of missionary journey, right? So when you and I think of missionary journeys, we think you have to travel around a lot to get to all the little places to spread the word of the Lord. But what Paul did is Paul planted himself in the right place and then allowed the word of the Lord to go to be spread word of mouth because he was preaching in the right place. This was also where he was when he wrote the majority of 
his letters because he had time to kind of plant his feet, preach, and the word gets spread. Now, what happens when this level of, oh, here comes the rain. You hear that? <laughs> That's what it was like when I woke up this morning. Um, what le- happens when this level of gospel movement breaks out in a cosmopolitan city of 250,000 people in the ancient world, well, it becomes something to talk about. And there's two really important scenarios that happen next that I want to draw out for you and kind of compare, contrast them to think about what this part of Paul's missionary journey teaches us. So the first, so starting at verse 11, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. Um, so this is great. You remember how I said Acts understates miracles? So you raise someone from the dead and it just kind of breezes past it. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that when handkerchiefs or aprons he had touched, that had touched his skin were brought to the sick, their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. That was a single verse, right? That's not important. Let's get to the good stuff. Um, then some itinerant Jewish exorcists tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. Now, this is important. Do you remember where I, tell, where I told you that having the Holy Spirit was not a matter of just, I feel this way or I don't. It was a tangible difference, right? There was an actual difference between people who had the Holy Spirit and people who didn't. And so what's happening here is some uh, traveling Jewish exorcists who have not actually received the gospel or heard the gospel, but they see what Paul is doing, and they're like, I'm going to try that trick. That looks like a great trick to, to try. They start trying to cast out demons in the name of Jesus, even though they don't belong to Jesus because they have not accepted the gospel. They're just trying to play the same game that Paul is playing, and this is what happens. Then some itinerant Jewish exorcists tried to use the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a high priest named Sceva were doing this. This is great. This is like one of the best stories in the Bible. The evil spirit said to them in reply, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man with the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered them, and so overpowered them that they fled the house naked and wounded. I thought that was funny. <laughs> he didn't kill him. But what happened is that there was, so there's an actual tangible difference between the people who have the Holy Spirit and the people who just want to be able to do the cool things, right? So what, what is happening in Acts is we have the disciples who are filled with the Holy Spirit are empowered to go out and actually do things, actually change things, um, to cast out demons, to heal diseases. And the people who just want to do the cool tricks are not empowered to do that because the gospel is about more than just cool tricks. Remember, the gospel is not actually about the miracles. The miracles are the way of opening the path for the Holy Spirit to move. And the people who are filled with the Holy Spirit see those miracles along the way as a part of the story of the kingdom of God, not as ends in and of themselves. And the whole difference is whether or not the Holy Spirit is in the person. When that became known to all residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, everyone was awestruck. And the name of the Lord Jesus was praised. Many of those who had become believers confessed and disclosed their practices. A number of those who practiced magic collected their books and burned them in the public. 
When the value of those books was calculated, it was found to come to 50,000 silver coins. So the word of the Lord grew mighty and prevailed. So what's happening there is people are coming forward publicly and confessing Christ. And that note about the book, these are people, I mean, I am not in favor of book burnings in general, but these people who would come to Christ had been practicing sorcery and magic, and they felt it an act of faith for them to give that up publicly. And so they came forward and gave up all of these things. And what we're seeing here is revival breaking out. Good, old-fashioned, New Testament, Holy Spirit revival breaking out in this cosmopolitan city of 250,000 people. And the Holy Spirit is moving, and people are coming to faith. And the more that the believers do, the more people come to faith, and the more people join this movement that at this point is called the way. Okay, I'm going to pause there. The most important part of the chapter comes next, but I'm going to pause there because I want us to think a second. Throughout all of this series, I've been asking you to consider yourself in the position of Paul, right? What's your missionary journey? Who are you called to preach to? Who are you called to proclaim the good news to? And you know, each and every single one, each and every one of us has a missionary journey, uh, whether we think of ourselves as missionaries or not, because our lives preach something, our lives proclaim something. And whether we are intentionally doing it or not, we are declaring the word of the Lord with the way we live and the way we speak to everyone around us. And, and God brings us intentionally into company of people, depending on what he wants them to hear from us. And so that's what the majority of this series has been about, thinking about yourself and your own missionary journey and your own mission field. But this morning, I want to just turn the tables a little bit. I want to, us to think in terms of the ones to whom Paul preached the ones to whom Paul proclaimed the good news. Because the way Christianity works is there is always some point along the way, even if you grew up in church, even if you were born into this faith, there's some point along the way when it it becomes yours, when someone preaches to you in a sense, even if it is not from a pulpit, even if it is a conversation, where the word of the Lord comes to you and there is a kind of personal surrender whereby you become a part of the family of God, and yes, we believe, receive the Holy Spirit. I'll do a whole other sermon on, on how we can tell the Holy Spirit. I don't necessarily think that you have to speak in tongues to receive the Holy Spirit, but what happens is when we have this surrendering, this moment of giving ourselves, um, you can call it giving your heart to Jesus, you can call it making Jesus your Lord, you can call it just becoming a part of the family of God. I don't think the language is important, but what happens is the Holy Spirit does come and live within us, and the fruit of the Holy Spirit is you start to develop qualities that you didn't otherwise have. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And these are not things that you get because you're working harder on them. These are fruit that are growing within you because you are a part of the family of God. You are living with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is making changes within you to make you a different kind of person. And once you have made that surrender, and God is living within you, then you do start to become the person who is living their own missionary journey that God is helping other people through, but that doesn't happen unless we have made that surrender ourselves. And it happens in so many different ways for so many different people. When I was, uh, I was growing up in church, I got so much biosmosis. 
But there was a certain point at which I, I surrendered. And I said, you know what, God, my life is yours. I'm not living for myself. My life is yours. I've heard very dramatic stories of how this happens. I've heard people who, um, uh, gosh, the most dramatic uh, are people who have run their lives into the ground and had no other choice but to come to Jesus because they were at the bottom of the well. And what I tell people is you do not have to hit rock bottom before you come to Jesus, really. (laughs) You don't have to do that, but it happens all the time, right? People hit rock bottom. They have nowhere else to turn. They turn to God, and and their life afterward is different. I've I've heard stories like that. I've also heard stories like this. I grew up in the church, and I can't point to a moment, and I have no idea when it happened, but I know that I need God like I need air, and I can't imagine my life without God. That's also a story, Right? It's a story that doesn't have a particular moment, but it's a story where at the end point, we are still filled with the Holy Spirit. We're still a member of the family of God. We are still in this movement that started back in Acts. Everyone has something, whether it is something that happens in a particular moment or something that happens over a period of time. And if we don't, then we're like those sons of Sceva who were going along just pretending to be Christians so that we could do the cool tricks we didn't actually want what the, the Christians were offering. We just wanted to do the cool tricks. That, I, I, I do not like to be very judgmental people because I think whatever reason you're in church is, is a good reason. God works with, with whatever, why ever you're here, right? Even if you come for a bad reason, God's like, I got you. You're in the right place. But I do think, I have seen Christians show up in church just because they want a prayer answered. And they have every intention of never showing up again once that prayer is answered. That's what the sons of Sceva are doing, right? I want to do the cool stuff. I have no interest in what God is doing on the face of the earth. I have no interest in the kingdom of God. I want to do the cool stuff. That's not Christianity. That's not Christianity. Christianity is being filled with the Holy Spirit and being made into somebody else so that you are useful to the kingdom of God. Now, I say all this because all of this is really important because we're about to get to the most Uh, momentous event of this chapter, and that is when people started pushing back against the movement of God that was happening in Ephesus. Now, all along, we've seen pushback. We've seen pushback about Paul being thrown in prison. We've seen pushback about people being arrested. This is bigger. This is what happens. Now, after all these things have been accomplished, Paul resolved in the spirit to go through Macedonia and Achaia and then to Jerusalem. So he's making his future plans. Uh, And then once I've gone there, I must also see Rome. Okay, verse 23. About that same time, no little disturbance broke out concerning the way. A man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who'd made silver shrines of Artemis. Artemis was the goddess with the great temple in Ephesus. Uh, It brought no little business to the artisans because people would go and visit the temple and then they would buy a little souvenir, so this little little silver idol to take home with them. The same way if you go and visit a place you buy a knick-knack to take home. Um, That's what they were doing. Um, he gathered together and with the workers of the same trade, and he said, men, you know that we get our wealth from this business. You also see in here, not only in Ephesus, but also in the whole of Asia, that Paul has persuaded and drawn away a considerable number of people by saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only to this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be scorned, and she will be deprived of her majesty and brought and that deprived of her majesty that brought all Asia and the world to worship her. 
So what he's saying, this is a guy who makes silver statues of Artemis to sell to tourists. And he goes, Paul is so successful, it's going to hurt our business. Paul is so successful, people are going to stop buying the silver statues we make. It's going to hurt our business. And Artemis is awesome. Who doesn't love Artemis? That's the second half of that. When they heard this, they were enraged and they shouted, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with confusions and the people rushed together into the theater. Remember, the theater seats 25,000 people. Dragging with them Gaius and Aristocrus, Macedonians who were Paul's travel companions. Paul wished to go in the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. And even some officials who were friendly to him sent a message urging him not to venture into the theater. Meanwhile, some were shouting one thing, some were shouting another. The assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd gave instructions for Alexander, whom the Jews had pushed forward, and Alexander motioned for silence. But when they recognized he was a Jew, for two hours they shouted in unison, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So what happens is the town clerk comes, he manages to talk them down and get them home, and then they get Paul out of, the, out of the city. And that's how his two-year journey in Ephesus ends. But what happens is this, is Paul is having such great success, revival is speaking, sweeping the city, so many people are coming to the Lord and becoming members of the family of God. And the local idol gets nervous. <laughs> And this is, this is all symbolic, right? Because I don't actually believe there is a real Artemis. I don't actually believe that there is a goddess up there. But what happened is the people who were so accustomed to worshiping their local goddess Artemis, that they were scared that this movement was going to mess up their finances. And they were scared that this movement was going to, dis, to, to devalue their, their, their idol, their goddess. And so there was a riot of 25,000 people filling a stadium shouting for the blood of the people who are preaching another gospel and shouting this, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, here's the reason I want you to think about this as a person who is being converted rather than as a person who is in a missionary journey. Because what's happening here is that as the kingdom of God is spreading and changing things, it is getting a little bit too close to home for people to consider it harmless. And they're realizing that the changes that are brought about by the kingdom of God are not in fact harmless to everyone. You know, there have actually been riots that I've read about when Christians move into a place and they, um, they are having so, so much success with their mission work that um, people are no longer going to brothels and the brothel owners don't appreciate that. Um, there have been movements where Christians go in and they, they're having so much success doing the work that they're doing that um, businesses that are not aligned with the kingdom of God stop getting business and they do not appreciate that. And so there's a societal level at which this plays out all the time. But I'll tell you what, there is a personal level at which this plays out in miniature to everyone who ever surrenders to the kingdom of God. Because here's the thing, before you worship God, and even sometimes while you worship God, you also have your favorite idols. This is the nature of being human. It's not just you. We all do this. Humans are meant to worship. Humans are created to worship. And we worship something whether it is good or not, and sometimes it changes as we grow up. 
there was a stage in my life that I, I, I worshipped um, societal acclaim. I worshipped um, being told uh, my reputation. There was a time in my life I worshipped um, money. There was a time in my life I worshipped success. Your idol changes as you get older. Your idol changes with your stage of life. But you always have an idol. And for the worshipers of Christ, it is not a question of what is my idol that is drawing me away from Christ. It's not a question of whether I have an idol. It's a question of what is my favorite idol today and in this season of life. Because there always is one. And for people who do not worship Christ, who do not have an overt worship of something, they are still worshiping their favorite idols, right? There is still something that commands the place of worship in their life. And here's the point of it. When God gets into your spirit, those idols start to push back. When God actually gets into your spirit and gets close, gets, starts touching a nerve, starts touching your pocketbook, or starts touching your time, or starts touching your priorities, or starts touching what you do with your body, when God actually starts influencing things that matter in your life, there is pushback that comes. There's absolutely pushback that comes. Um, I've seen people, remember I told you those stories about people hitting the, the bottom of the barrel and giving their lives to Christ, but they had battled a demon, but also an idol of addiction for years and years and years, and they give their life to Christ, and you had better believe that addiction flares up, because that addiction does not want to be unseated as the idol of their life. I've seen people who have um, more societally appropriate idols. So addiction is, is not societally appropriate, which is why we all recognize it as an idol. But the ones that are societally appropriate, pride is super societally appropriate. We don't care about that one. Success, wealth, power, fame, reputation, whatever it is that's your idol, if God gets into our hearts enough that he starts to unseat it, you better believe there's going to be pushback. Because idols do not take well to being unseated. And what we saw in Ephesus was a 25,000 seat theater filled. And what I see in people's life is that if they are not ready, they underestimate the power that the idols held in their lives. When C.S. Lewis was talking to a young man who was considering converting to Christianity, they went back and forth several times. And this young man had so many intellectual questions, but at the, at the core, he really had heart questions because we are really not creatures that function on the mind. We're creatures that function on the heart. And so C.S. Lewis answered all these intellectual questions, but then he got down to the heart questions. And this man eventually ended up coming to faith and jumping, as he said, into the arms of Christ. And C.S. Lewis wrote back, and his first two lines were a thousand welcomes. And his second line was this, expect an attack. Expect a counterattack. The enemy will not easily lose one of its own. Friends, the reason I am preaching this this morning is that whether you have been in the faith one week or 30 years or 60 years, whether you have been filled with the Holy Spirit for a small amount of time or a large amount of time, you are not beyond this touching your life. Because the nature of being human is that even when we put God as the top of our lives, even when we are filled with the Holy Spirit, even when we declare ourselves to be members of the household of God, the temptation of idolatry is always there. Always. 
And we will find ourselves going through life and living faithfully, but then in our minds, reorganizing our priorities so that that idol just kind of slips in and slips in. And before we know it, we have unseated God as the top priority in our life. And we are paying lip service to our worship of God when in fact we are worshiping something else. And then when we try to unseat it and put our priorities back in order, Boy, it gets hard. Boy, it gets hard. Friends, wherever you are this morning, the word of the Lord is this. The idols are lying. God is the true king. God is the true one who deserves to be worshiped in your life. And however loud the stadium shouts when you try to unseat an idol, it's not telling the truth. However loud it gets, however noisy it gets, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is my reputation. Great is my, I don't know, portfolio. (laughs) Great is my sense of security. Great is the thing that I have made my idol for today. It gets loud and yet it is never true because the only one who is great in our lives is God. And the only one who is worthy of our worship is God. And the only one who is capable of making you the person that you were created to be is God, who through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit will transform you, will transform you. Friends, this morning and this week, think of yourself as a missionary, but think of yourself as a worshiper. And ask yourself in your heart of hearts, who is worthy of your worship? Would you join with me in a word of prayer? Almighty God, giver of all good things. God, you have called us into your family. You have called us into the kingdom of God. You've called us into the household of God. You have taken us out of where we were and you have made us into a new people. And God, right now, I pray for the hearts that are gathered here because you know the battles that are being fought within us. You know those of us who have never truly surrendered our lives to you. And God, I pray right now that you would move within us and give us the grace to do that. You know those of us who surrendered our lives a long time ago and yet have slipped back and we've started making you less and less and less of a priority. And God, we pray that you would come And we pray that you would rearrange our priorities, that we would worship you with all that we have, that you would hold the top place in our lives. God, we pray for all of the hearts that are gathered here who followed you for a long time and who have followed you faithfully. But God, we are just tired of some of the pushback that comes. And so God, I pray that you would come and you would silence the idols. We pray that you would silence the idols. And we pray that you would give us clearly in our heart of hearts a vision of who you are and the place you merit in our lives, that we might be freed to become people through whom you change the world, that we might be freed to become people who are bearers of the Holy Spirit to a world desperate for your love and desperate for your grace. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Forgive us and free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.